This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome. We hope that you were able to catch on the National Geographic Channel on March 15th the excellent documentary Water and Power, a California Heist. We say that because we were privileged on last week's program to speak with director Marina Zenovich, as well as attorney Adam Keats, who's featured prominently in the documentary. The issue of what goes on in California with water, and, and well, it is water and power. They mean the same thing, I think, in the Golden State is a recurring topic on this program because we think we need to keep discussing the misuse of this resource that's supposed to benefit all of us, but in fact has been hijacked by a select few. We will, of course, return to this topic in the future as uh, we see our great snowpack commence melting here in California and with an increasing risk of floods, which is quite quite an irony. Uh, in that we're talking about water as a scarce resource and how it is misused. When we go to look for life on other planets, water seems to be the key ingredient we are searching for. And it's interesting to note that astronomers have now found water, at least water vapor, in the atmosphere of an exoplanet called 51 Pegasi b, 50 light years away. It's a rather nifty bit of scientific sleuthing all previous water detection, and they have found water in exoplanets before, uh, but all previous detections relied upon the planets transiting in front of their host star. The problem is that most exoplanets don't make such transits. In analyzing the spectrum of this planet, which of course orbits its parent star 51 Pegasi, they were able to use Doppler shifts to sort out the atmospheric signal from the planet from its host star. Pretty cool piece of deduction, if you ask me. And then another water-related story, since we're starting out rather wet at the top of this program. It turns out the nation of India is planning to make the longest river ever. Yes, in India, they're planning to link up the rivers that crisscross the nation. The theory is that by doing so, they can divert water from flood-prone areas in the east and north to those vulnerable to drought in the west and center of the country. But New Scientist magazine notes that the scheme could be calamitous for the environment. The interlinking of rivers scheme, that's what they're calling it, the interlinking of rivers, which government officials say is to get the green light from India's environmental ministry soon, is slated to create a water network 12,500 kilometers long, almost twice the length of the world's longest rivers, the Nile and Amazon. Now, geologists have pointed out that over the millennia, India's landscape has gradually evolved with the natural flow of water. And in this case, pushing rivers around is going to disrupt the supply of sediments and nutrients downstream. we got a feeling this is going to have a lot of collateral damage to the ecosystem of India. We'll just have to see. But we do want to point out that in Egypt, which for 5,000 years had had a successful gig operating on the fact that the Nile would overflow every year and replenish its banks with nutrient silt. Well, all that changed when they built the high dam at Aswan. Now they have to rely upon chemical fertilizers. Yes, even though it had not been broken for the past five millennia, they decided to fix it anyway. Daylight savings time has been in the news lately. People seem to act as though it's the end of the world every time we move our clocks forward an hour or back. 
personally, not being a morning person, um, I'm in favor of daylight savings time over standard time. I did like the briefing section on the issue of daylight savings in the week magazine. I always thought that this goes back to Ben Franklin. But according to the magazine, daylight savings time was first proposed in 1895 by George Vernon Hudson, a New Zealand postal worker and amateur entomologist. Hudson suggested moving clocks ahead in spring so the sun would rise later in the day and shine longer into the evening during the winter months. Hudson thought it would make those later hours more productive, which in his case meant he'd have more time to hunt insects after work, while also conserving resources by reducing the excessive use of artificial light. The idea wasn't taken seriously at first, but in 1916, Germany became the first nation to implement daylight savings time as a fuel-saving measure during World War I. England and the U.S. soon enacted daylight savings time laws of their own, ostensibly in the same spirit of wartime conservation. But profit was also a driving force. In large part, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce pushed America's clocks ahead. I did not know this. What was the rationale? Well, business leaders reasoned that people are more likely to shop after work if it's still light. And people in the recreation industries were especially bullish on daylight savings. Apparently, golf ball sales skyrocketed. But nationally, the time switch was unpopular. A century ago, when more Americans lived in rural areas, people rose and went to bed earlier. Farmers hated daylight savings. Turning clocks ahead meant to them an hour's less morning light for moving goods to market. Before World War I and even ended, Congress had repealed daylight savings to quell the revolt from the farm lobby. After that, daylight savings was sort of a local option. To this day, Hawaii and Arizona have opted out of switching the clocks. But apparently as recently as the 1960s, the U.S. was a patchwork of cities observing daylight savings time surrounded by rural areas that did not. It was in 1966 that this chaos eventually inspired the Uniform Time Act, America's first peacetime daylight savings time law. Now, during the energy crises in the 70s and 80s, we extended daylight savings time on the idea that it would be an energy savings measure. Uh, some people are casting doubt on that now, saying that uh, lighting is not the big driver that it used to be, and it may well be that extending air conditioner use in daylight hours may outweigh any savings. Again, I like daylight savings time, and I wish we had it all year round. For our quote of the week, let's go to Abraham Lincoln, a very quotable man. Lincoln once said, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And although we've used this one before, I think for our quip today, we're going to go with that great social philosopher, Mike Tyson, who once said, Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So true, Mr. Tyson. So true. And while it's not a, what you'd call a traditional joke, for our humor item for today's show, we're going to refer to the new book by Michael Lewis, titled The Undoing Project, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds. The book is about a couple of very smart Israelis, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, and what their work revealed about how we make up our minds. Haven't read the book, but saw a special on television a couple weeks back about, uh, about these two gentlemen. And they are indeed a couple of interesting characters, but I want to focus on Amos Tversky for our humor item. He wound up later in his career over at Stanford University. Everyone that met him, it seems to be pretty much universal, everyone that met him concluded soon afterwards that he was, in fact, the smartest person they ever met. But some wags among his associates at Stanford uh, 
compiled what I think was called the Tversky Law. It was a form of IQ test. When someone met Amos Tversky, the longer it took him to realize, or her to realize, that he was in fact smarter than they were, was an indication of that person's intelligence, being that the longer it took them to realize that, the dumber they were. And we suspect there is some validity to a test like that. When here at Radio Parallax, we had the opportunity to speak with physicist Freeman Dyson some years back. We'd have to say it didn't take us very long to realize he was way smarter than we were. All right, we like to have a good news item on every week's program, and, and we in fact do have one, which is as follows. An Oregon farmer and yoga buff has combined her two passions to create a new exercise craze, goat yoga. These classes take place on Lainey Morse's Albany Farm, and they resemble a typical yoga session, except that Morse's eight goats stroll among the participants and climb on their backs as they do poses. Goat yoga has proved to be a huge hit, and the waiting list for the class is now more than 1,200 names long. According to Morris, the sessions can work wonders for people struggling with depression or anxiety. She said, it's hard to be sad when there's baby goats jumping on you. Well, we've, we've always thought so here at Radio Parallax. How about this for our stat of the week? Apparently, each loaf of bread that gets baked produces half a kilo of CO2. We had not thought of bread as being a contributor to global warming, but evidently uh, it has a role to play. It is said that in the case of bread, the main contributor is the nitrogen fertilizer used to grow wheat. Making and using the fertilizer creates 40% of the emissions. Yikes. And we got a, two items here that aren't exactly anecdotes, but we're going to try and shoehorn them into that category anyway. The first is this. The U.S. Court of International Trade has ruled that Snuggies are in fact blankets and not clothes. Snuggie maker Alstar Marketing Group has spent six years battling the government over its designation of their wearable polyester blankets as clothes. The reason for this, blankets are subjected to an 8.5% import duty as opposed to a 14.9% import duty for pullover apparel. Personally, we are not sure how it is you can define Snuggies as anything else besides pullover apparel, but hey, we're not working for the U.S. Court of International Trade, and that's, that has worked to all-star marketing groups' advantage. And sort of anecdote number two is as follows. Apparently, we might have spotted the icy plumes coming off of Saturn's frozen moon Enceladus 25 years earlier than we did if we had only known to look. Plumes were first definitively observed erupting from Enceladus's south pole by NASA's Cassini spacecraft in 2005. Further observations suggest that the moon hosts a subsurface sea that could be one of the best places in the solar system to look for life. Again, water, life. But now, Ted Strike, that's distinguished from Ted Stryker from the movie Airplane, described as a space imaging processing enthusiast from Tennessee, believes he's made a pre-discovery of those plumes in archived data from the Voyager 1 probe, which raced past the Saturnian moon in 1980. Strike processed Voyager 1's images that are publicly available from NASA's online planetary data system to reveal a faint protrusion emanating from the moon's southern hemisphere. The work will be published in the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in Texas next month. And we're going to try and look in on that. As no doubt will our good friend Matt Kaplan of Planetary Radio. 
And I've been sitting on this item since last November because I just wasn't quite sure what to do with it, but I'm just going to read it, I think. It was noted last November 18th in the week that the city of Davis, California, was described as being terrorized by a gang of aggressive wild turkeys. Dozens of the birds have set up a home in the city where they patrol the streets, eat the landscaping, and bully local residents. One desperate man reportedly said in a 911 call, I got a turkey here that just won't let me leave. It just put me in the corner. It was reported in November that Davis hopes to begin relocating the birds soon. We're going to have to look into this one. Mr. Merlin does wonder if a few of them had got relocated to your local homeless shelter right about Thanksgiving time, but we, we just don't know. And another more recent item, which we don't quite know exactly what to make of, is the following. Reportedly, a 220,000-gallon commercial-sized swimming pool contains an average of almost 20 gallons of urine, according to a new study by the University of Alberta. In a residential pool, that would translate to about two gallons of pee. I understand they came up with this number by measuring things that more or less pass straight through the body and into one's urine. Personally, we're not that intimidated by the ooh factor in all of this. As we pointed out on the show previously, that in ancient times, urine was found to be a tremendously good skin softener. In fact, to this very day, if you go to the cosmetics counter at Nordstrom's or another highfalutin place and buy skin softener, you will find that the really good stuff generally contains like something like 10% urea, which frankly is considerably more concentrated than two gallons in a residential pool, if you know what I mean. Urea is not the most toxic substance in the world. Although we have to admit that when what are called urea-splitting organisms go to work on it in, say, public latrines, it does tend to get a little odiferous. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? According to the Week magazine, it was a good week a few weeks back for so-called safe spaces in the wake of a group of University of Michigan students calling on school officials to create a segregated safe space for African Americans in the wake of Donald Trump's election. Students for Justice said Trump's election means that they now have their lives at risk, that the campus police can no longer protect them because the police as a union has endorsed Trump. It was, on the other hand, a bad week this last week for Representative Jason Chaffetz, who was photographed talking on his own iPhone after recommending publicly that the poor give up their cell phones when Obamacare is repealed. Rather than getting that new iPhone they love, Chaffetz said, maybe they can invest in their own health care. It was, on the other hand, a potentially ugly week last week for women's rights with the news that Texas lawmakers have advanced a bill that would allow doctors to lie to pregnant women about fetal abnormalities if they feel the truth might lead to an abortion. Supporters say the law, which the state Senate passed unanimously, would protect the rights of doctors and unborn disabled children. Opponents say the law would interfere with a woman's right to make an informed decision and allow doctors to impose religious beliefs on their patients. We like to think that if you imagine that's a good bill, that you're probably not a radio parallax listener but if by chance you are please think that one through again 
And finally, it was both an ugly, we'd have to say, and bad week for Vice President Mike Pence last week when it was revealed that he admitted that he used a private email account to conduct official state business while he was governor of Indiana. And yes, noted Slate.com, that's the same Mike Pence who spent much time during his campaign baying about Hillary Clinton's use of a private server as crowds shouted, lock her up! It is noted that in his emails, the ex-governor trafficked in sensitive matters, including homeland security concerns and FBI updates on terror-related arrests. And wouldn't you know it, his AOL account got hacked. Of course, you have to ask at this point, what is the governor of a state doing using AOL? It should be noted, in addition, that the president of the United States, (laughs) Donald Trump, remember him? He's reportedly still using his old unsecured Android phone, which we'd have to describe as being unbelievably reckless for the president of the United States. Although speaking of Trump, and sorry to say we're going to have to, I did get a kick out of the fact that last month when he met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, he left the Prime Minister speechless momentarily after Trump said in a press conference, I'm looking at two states and one state and I could live with either one. He apparently directly urged Netanyahu to, quote, hold back on settlements for a little bit, unquote. Well, yeah, we at Radio Paralyze think they should hold back on settlements for more than a little bit, but I, I guess it's a start. Saying even that much apparently left Netanyahu visibly uncomfortable. I did have to get a laugh a couple of days back when I noticed that uh, the New Yorker magazine, in an article analyzing this big controversy currently between the battle between the Trump administration and the so-called deep state, that according to the New Yorker, America doesn't have a deep state. What a relief. There certainly appears to be some sort of epic battle going on behind the scenes of, uh, of America's power elite factions, and we're just all going to have to stand back and watch it unfold. But, of course, one of the key players in this is our Central Intelligence Agency, reportedly currently reeling from what appears to be the biggest security breach in its history. WikiLeaks published a massive trove of documents last week purporting to show the spy agency's tools for hacking into our everyday devices and software. WikiLeaks released 8,761 documents and files, which included instructions for breaking into smartphones, messaging apps, computer operating systems, and even smart televisions. As we previously reported on this program, Some of these techniques that were described in the WikiLeaks would allow intelligence agents to turn on cameras and microphones in our home devices to snoop on us, and in doing so, bypass the encryption on supposedly secure services such as Signal, WhatsApp, and Telegram. Intelligence sources said the files appear to be genuine and could do grave, if not irreparable, damage to the CIA's ability to spy on ISIS and other terrorist networks. Yes, among all of us, you can bet we'll continue to follow that story. Now, because we were off the air last November, we did not report on you from the excellent article by Wendy Lee in the San Francisco Chronicle. This was dated 11-24-16. The headline was, Hackers Find Open Channels for Spying. And yes, apparently among hackers we find the Central Intelligence Agency. Now, of course, the idea that we're going to have this so-called Internet of Things, where every device in your house that turns on your lights, etc., is going to be connected to the Internet, allows all sorts of backdoors for hackers to get into your stuff. It's been demonstrated again and again that people with bad intent can take over poorly protected devices like baby monitors and digital video recorders. 
Wendy Lee's piece noted that the internet-connected Hello Barbie doll, which speaks and listens to children, could be hacked to allow outsiders access to audio recordings. You probably noted that some months back, Mark Zuckerberg was photographed uh, uh, in front of his laptop, or maybe it was his desktop, I don't know which, but he did have a piece of tape prominently placed across his camera. Uh, We may wish to consider uh, following Mr. Zuckerberg's lead on this one. We're intrigued to note that some people are asking about social media, whether it is in fact driving us crazy. Dina Shanker, writing in Bloomberg.com, noted a couple weeks back that the American Psychological Association has released a study that found that Americans are now experiencing the, the first statistically significant stress increase in 10 years. It is believed that our inability to log off is at least partly to blame. 43% of Americans say they check their email, texts, and social media accounts constantly. On a 10-point scale, these constant checkers reported an average stress level of 5.3. For Americans who aren't glued to their screens, the average is just 4.4. Writing in Recode.net, Mary McNaughton said Americans need a social media detox. The problem is that our brains are programmed to pay attention to rapidly changing stimuli. This predilection helped our cave-dwelling ancestors who had to constantly monitor their environment for predators and other dangers, but this same tendency now makes it difficult for us to ignore the latest posts on Twitter or Facebook. It is suggested if you suspect that you're spending too much time online, try treating your media consumption as a bad habit, like smoking or overeating. You might want to consider keeping a log of your internet use for a few days, including when, where, and why you go online. Writing in FastCompany.com, Gwen Moran, in all three cases here, we're quoting from the technology section of the week, noted that you don't have to go cold turkey. You might simply delete social media apps from your smartphone. That can make a big difference. You, of course, can still access the platform on your laptop or desktop, but you're not carrying around the constant temptation to check in. We were also intrigued, as we often are, by the book reviews, which appear in New Scientist magazine. By reading the book review, sometimes we can, we think we can maybe skip having to read the whole book. And no, we don't recommend, dear listener, that you do that. We're just that we're awfully busy. So we welcome the fact that uh, the editors at New Scientist weighed in on the book Irresistible, Why We Can't Stop Checking, Scrolling, Clicking, and Watching by Adam Alter. To note that um, depending on how you define it, we may say that half the developed world is now addicted to something. Where once the bulk of our addictions were to substances, we might consider that they now may be to behaviors. Things like online gaming, postings on Facebook and Instagram, binge viewing on Netflix, and obsessively checking emails and mobile phones. Though the magazine This 21st Century Pandemic is the subject of Adam Alter's Irresistible, a book which lives up to its title. The magazine notes that you might doubt that your iPhone or Fitbit use is actually an addiction until recently neuroscientists would have agreed but they point out we now know that addictive behaviors produce the same brain responses as drug abuse the release of dopamine deep inside the brain and its uptake by receptors resulting in intense feeling of pleasure they go on to note that psychologists are finding out more and more about the nature of addictive behaviors We've long known, and I was taught this back in college, that a system that rewards you in an unpredictable way is more addicting. This is applicable both to pigeons pecking for rewards in a Skinner box and for customers working the one-armed bandits in 
your local casino. Turns out that feedback is one of six behavior addiction factors. I guess Alter explores all six of them in the book. If you're keeping track, the other five are goals, which should be just beyond reach. Progress, through which one senses an incremental mastery of the subject at hand. Escalation, making it progressively more difficult. Cliffhangers, to provide tension that demands resolution. And strong social connections. Adam Alter apparently writes that despite their diversity, today's behavioral addictions embody at least one of those six ingredients. At any rate, the one addiction we hope that uh, you will not seek to change in your life is an addiction to radio parallax, which needs to take a break right now. We will do so. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We've got plenty more in our second segment. Stick around. Stick around. 